Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you tonight for loving us as we've gathered around this table and Lord shared. We thank you so much that, Lord, we can call you our Father because of the work of your Son. We thank you as we uh, commemorate this time and we remember what happened before the resurrection, the death of our Savior. And, Lord, as we look into this book tonight and this uh, writing of Isaiah, we pray that you will open our hearts to its truths. I pray, Lord, if there was one here who hasn't heard, if there is one here who has not believed the report, the power of God, the strong arm of the Lord to save. I pray, Lord, that you might open their heart to those truths tonight, that they might be saved and their life transformed. And Lord, I pray you will help me tonight, especially uh, as we look at this passage. May you be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This chapter is regarded by many through the centuries as the first gospel. Now, we think of the gospel, we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there are many who look at this and think of the gospel in that it gave the life of Christ and his deeds and works and his death and resurrection. All those things can be found in Isaiah 53. It is a great passage of scripture. Um, Martin Luther uh, said this was one of the most important chapters in the whole Old Testament. And he believed that every Christian should memorize by heart this chapter of Scripture. And I agree with it. I think it is a great passage. Written 700 years before Christ plus. And in, in that sense, we look at this passage of Scripture and we think of it as being prophetic. And it is. It tells beforehand Tonight, when we read in Psalm 22, we see also a thousand years before Christ even come were the truths of what was going to take place. Uh, they were there. Jesus spoke of his death before he ever got to Calvary, troubled his disciples greatly, and maybe we'll talk about that again. But there's something else about this passage of Scripture that has amazed me through the years as I have studied it. Now, we think of it as prophetic, and it is, but it's more than that. If you will notice the passage, look at verse 2. For he grew up, past tense. He was despised, past tense, verse 3. And surely he has borne our grief, verse 4. It's all given in the past tense. It's very interesting as you look at this particular passage of Scripture. It, it startles your mind as you think of it. You know it's prophetic. There's no question about that. It tells what Christ will do and, and many things about that. Even his resurrection is in this passage of Scripture. But yet it speaks as a funeral dirge of looking back. Now the question is, who's to be looking at it? Well, we are here tonight. That's what we're doing here tonight. We're thinking of what Christ did, how he died for us, how he loved us, uh, what great power uh, and a plan that is righteous and holy that God has brought forth. But you think of this especially in light of the book of Isaiah written to Judah and the Jews there, how they had forsaken God and they were completely out of line. And you see in chapter one, right off the bat, he talks about them being sick spiritually from, from their head to their feet. They're troubled. And we think of the day of when Christ came, and even in this time, 
They not following the Lord. And when he came, they were looking for someone totally different from who he was. They wanted someone who would lead them to overcome uh, the bondage that they saw with Rome and their enemies around, not knowing that the greatest bondage they had was their sin and their blindness. And that's what this passage is talking about. And one day, those Jews that are saved, just like you and I are saved, we'll look back at this passage and realize our blindness and our hardness and our sinfulness and what Christ has done and then realize how great and merciful God is in His grace that He would save us. But as we think of this passage, we think of that. In the, in, in the beginning of these verses here, uh, starting in verse 2, by the way, the question is brought out in the first verse. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm or the power of the Lord been revealed? Well, we understand none of us ever see that apart from God working in our lives and our hearts. We understand that. We are all blind. But as it goes on in the passage of Scripture, it speaks of his servant. As we saw in chapter 52 in verse 13, Behold my servant, he shall deal wisely. It's speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ very clearly all the way through. But in verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground, and he has no form or majesty that we should look at him. We look at his humanity and the lowliness of it. When Jesus appeared, there was nothing about him in his bodily form that made him stand out from anyone else. Now, we would think in our minds that it's bound to have done. Maybe you've seen those pictures with the halo, you know, and, and all of that. Listen, it wasn't like that at all. He appeared a normal man, nothing majestic about him. Listen, he had no degrees. He's, listen, he's from Nazareth. It's the last place they would have thought that the Messiah, the servant of God, would ever come from. And yet Jesus was and is that servant. Look at his followers. Listen, for goodness sake, his disciples, six or seven of them were fishermen, smelly guys. Have you ever been around a fisherman who did it for a lifestyle? Let me tell you something. You don't want to get near them until they find a bath. And uh, I mean, that's the kind of people that he took up to be his inner circle and his disciples. One of them was a tax collector. He had been saved and, and, and probably a record keeper, if you will, for the disciples as they went along on their missions and all the things that were going on. That's what he did. And Jesus was accused often of hanging around with this crowd of people. This was very, very hard for the Jewish leaders of that day, the spiritual leaders to understand. Not a priest, not a Pharisee, not a scribe, not a Gamaliel among the group. They were all lowly people. It speaks of him as a young plant. Notice what it says. He grew up before him as a young plant. The picture there that is painting is of a suckling that comes up. You might have a tree or a plant, big plant in the yard sometime, and you go around preparing it, maybe doing the things you need to do, and you see a little sprout coming up from it. You want to get rid of that, you cut it and throw it away. It, It will prevent the plant from having its full growth. That's the picture they see of Jesus. He was that to be cut and thrown away. A root out of dry ground. Now, if you've ever done much running around and walking in the woods, you might understand what this is. You may not have ever thought of it in this terms, but here's what it's talking about. Roots sometimes come up out of the ground and find their way back in the ground and they make a loop. 
And if you're running through the woods or walking through the woods, you might get your foot hung up in it and fall. Listen, Jesus Christ was a stumbling stone. That's exactly what we're told. That's exactly what we see in this passage. He was not what men thought he would be. God's plan is so different from ours so oftentimes that we stumble at what he's doing as he works in our life. He was despised. Look at verse 3 with me. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and esteemed not. Here in this passage of Scripture, it speaks of how Jesus was so hated and despised in his day. When he came on the scene, now when he was performing the miracles, he had large crowds. But when it come down to the gospel message of repentance and trusting God for his plan and his salvation, there were problems, especially with those who were self-righteous, those who believed that they had kept the law and somehow uh, deserved because of that to uh, be in God's favor. They misunderstood completely the law in the Old Testament. Here in this passage of Scripture, it says he was despised. It, it describes him of one that you might see a person that maybe for some reason, something that has happened to them, you meet them on the street and you really don't want to look at them. You just don't want to look and you turn your face away from them. That's how Jesus was. That's how he was dealt with. In Mark 6, we hear the leaders uh, from his own hometown asking, is this not the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? He that is claiming to be this person? When Lazarus was raised from the dead, that great story in John chapter 11, I love that story. And there, many of the Jews had gathered and they saw it. They saw what had happened. The Jews, some of them believed and they went back and told the Jewish leaders what had taken place. The Jewish leaders are so troubled now that, that rather than believing, they gather together and try to come up with some idea how they might kill him. Can you imagine that? He raises the dead. He transforms people's lives. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He does all these great things. And yet all the more, rather than seeing him as the Messiah, as the servant of God, they hate him. In the early Christian days, Christians, in order to communicate and to do it not to be seen so much because of persecution, they took on the sign of the fish. Many of you see it today on bumpers and all kinds. It's from the, the word fish is the word ichthus. And each one of those letters become an acrostic, and they give you the five names that are used for Christ in the New Testament. Listen, the Jewish leaders shortly afterwards, they made their own acrostic. They took the name Yeshua and shortened it to Yeshu. And all the letters would say this, let his name be blotted out. As you and I think of it as him being the son of God, as being God himself and all those things that are pictured in that symbol, the Jewish leaders were so despising him that they wished and hoped for his name to be blotted out. But I'm here to tell you, it didn't work. Oh, listen, Jesus Christ came with the plan of God. It was not accident. By the way, if you ever hear a naysayer who says he come and had this great plan of taking on and leading the Jews, and when it failed, he ended up on a cross. 
I want to tell you something. It was planned from the foundation of the world. Read the book of Acts chapter 2. Read on and on in the scriptures. Look at this passage. Look, if you will, back in Psalms 22 and many passages of scripture. Though it, those who, when he came, were blind to it, it was the plan of God all the time. He bore our sorrows. Notice with me, if you will. Look at verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God. Jesus Christ, when he went to Calvary, there he bore our sorrows and our iniquities, as we will see in this passage of Scripture. And notice what it says. Yet we esteem him smitten and stricken of God. He's on that cross because he's the sinner. He's the one that has violated God Almighty. And here they, they turn it around, not realizing that Jesus Christ was there for you and I that will believe the gospel and trust him. We see it over and over. Verse 5, notice what it says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed here in this passage of Scripture. It tells us. What a beautiful picture as Jesus was, listen, pierced there, not because of his sins. He was without sin. He was not born in sin. He never sinned. And very different from us, Jesus Christ came to take away our sins if we will believe and trust in him by paying for them. You know, I, I, I'm so tempted when I get in a passage like this to go back and describe the cross and listen, it was a horrible thing. The cross was unquestionably one of the worst ways to die. The Phoenicians started it some 400 years before Christ, and the Romans perfected it, and there are words that are used sometimes to describe it. Some of those words are the words like, it was agonizing. And here's a word that really was acquainted with the cross. It was a slow death. The intent was for that person to hang there, especially that had violated Rome, and to know if you violate Rome, this is what you will suffer on and on. And sometimes it went on more than one day before the person would die, as you think about that. In chapter 52, we saw it. As many, verse 14, were astonished at his appearance. He was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And certainly Jesus did die that way. But I want to tell you something about this passage of Scripture. When you think of this and you think of the cross of Christ, it was a horrendous thing and must have been a horrendous way to die. But I want you to know when there was darkness over three hours during that period of time, Jesus was suffering something far more than nails in his hands and his feet. Jesus Christ, as if the father had turned his back on his son because he could not look upon him as your sins, if you were a believer, and my sins, all that you and I could ever commit or have ever been committed by believers, Jesus was bearing the wrath of his Father for us. Now, folks, I want to tell you, when Jesus was praying in that garden, I'm not saying he wasn't concerned about that cross, but all he was concerned, the Bible said he saw it as, as unto death as he thought about the Father turning his back on him. And there Jesus Christ alone would bear the wrath of Almighty God who was holy and just and must pay for those sins. Jesus sorrowed unto death. And I want to tell you, as I look at this passage of Scripture too, I think of the way it is stated here in this passage. Let me look at two or three places. In verse 5, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
Verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all, if you will. Over in verse 11, he, uh, by his knowledge shall my righteous one, my servant, make many be counted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. And then in verse 12, toward the bottom, and yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here in this passage of scripture, you cannot help but see this and see the substitution atonement laid out 700 years before Christ ever came. Jesus Christ would take my place. You know, I cannot believe, but when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin, that couldn't be but one person, Jesus, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God of him. I, 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 think, of, I think of this passage of scripture and I think maybe the apostle Paul had even been thinking about this passage as he looked back at it and saw the substitution in how Christ would take our sin. Folks, here's what it means. Jesus Christ was born sinless. He never sinned in his life and he was never a sinner. But when the father there, when Jesus was on the Christ, he, uh, on the cross, he looked down at his son as if he was James Sasser who had committed the most horrible sins ever. And he put the judgment of me and you, if you're a believer, and whoever's in this room or out in this world that will ever believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything you or I have ever done was poured out on Jesus as if he were a sinner, but he was sinless. And then I want to tell you something. I struggle as a Christian. I fight battles just like you do. I know sometimes we don't share things out loud, and that's probably a very good thing. But I want to tell you something. There ain't a person in this room. I don't care if you've been saved 42 years like I have, and you think, well, when I get old, I won't have many sin problems. I'm here to tell you they get worse. Listen, I'm so serious about this. I think of all the things that I struggle with and hate so bad. I long for the day of a new body that will be sin-free. But I want to tell you, the reason I have hope and joy in my heart tonight is this. Because when the father looks down and he sees James Sasser, he sees a man that 42 years ago, when he gave the gospel, God opened my heart and I believed and when he looks at me, he looks at me just like he's looking at Jesus who never committed a sin. That is so good. That is my hope. And I hope that is your hope tonight and all you rely upon. Well, I don't mean it doesn't matter how you live. If you believe that, you want to live right. You want to serve and honor God. And I plead with you, if you've never been saved, that tonight you would understand the gospel so clearly. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. If you will hear this report, this message of the gospel, and believe the power of God to save you, he will save you and transform your life. I got one more thought, and I cannot help this. Can you imagine, after Christ died on the cross, approaching Mary, or one of the disciples, if you could find them, because the scripture says they scattered and I'd have done no better. But can you imagine walking up to one of them and said, this is a good Friday. <laughs> can you imagine that day with all they misunderstood? Oh, they loved him. They believed in him. 
Listen, Peter rebuked him when Jesus in Matthew 16 talked about going to the cross to die. He rebuked him. And yet, a couple days later, they realized. You, you know, and I think about, I got weird thoughts. I think about this time, and I've had to look at this passage for myself. I've had to sit down with people in the Lord through the years and, and carefully share this verse of Scripture with them. All things work together for good to those who love God. Can you imagine they thinking of the cross working good? Listen, when you and I are in trouble, God loves us. If you love him and walk with him, all things work together for good and love him. It's a good Friday. The Good Friday, Jesus delivered us from our sins.